Well, good morning. It's great to be with you in worship. Welcome to In Town, especially if you're visiting with us or new. Uh, we are in the middle of a Lenten series on the prophets uh, entitled The Prophets of Repentance. And this morning we're looking at uh, the book of Hosea, the prophecy of Hosea. Um, I probably should say something about the Madonna mic that I'm wearing since it is a little bit different and you're staring at me like something is on my face. Um, but I've resisted this for many years because of aesthetics and cost. And finally, a generous donor said, I'll do anything to keep from hearing Steve popping his consonants throughout every sermon. And so they uh, donated a couple of these mics. So we're going to give them a try. Hopefully, they're not too distracting, and they'll give us a lot better sound, both online as well as uh, in here. So hopefully, you'll be able to see through it in not too long. Uh, Let's pray for our time, and let me read our passage. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, wherever we're coming from this morning, what binds us together is that we are weak, broken, sinful people, and we need you. And to get to you, we need to repent. We need to see ourselves as you do. We need to see our sin as you do. Father, help us to see what that would mean, what that would look like in our lives, Help us to see what repentance would truly uh, bring to light, what it would truly represent, what we would truly have to give up. And Father, grant us repentant hearts. As we read, as we hear, as we walk through this passage, I pray that you would change us, you would grant us repentant spirits so that we can come once again into your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you've probably noticed we are looking primarily at the minor prophets, if that means anything to you at all. Minor in this circumstance doesn't mean less, less important, but it means little. It means smaller. These books are generally smaller than the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and so forth. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the prophet Isaiah other than that he prophesied in the northern kingdom, that is the northern part of Israel, somewhere in the middle of the 8th century B.C. Now, he's most likely a rabbi. He's doing quite well. He's climbing the religious ladder. He's well-respected enough in the community to, for God to use him as a platform to speak to the northern kingdom. Things are going well. And then God shows up and says, I've got a job for you to do. And sort of like we saw in Jonah last week, that job is something that no one would envy, no one would want to do. He says, I want you to go down to the red light district, Hosea, and find a prostitute. 
And you can hear him thinking, okay, God, I'll get my copy of the four Jewish laws. I'll take them down, and maybe I can convert this prostitute to believe in Yahweh. Uh, And God says, no, I'd like you to marry her. What? You'd like me to do what, God? Come again? So this rabbi, this prophet, goes and finds Gomer and takes her back to the manse. And certainly that's going to get people talking. What is going on? With Hosea, has he lost his mind? Hosea, Gomer is like a city without walls. She's defenseless against her own passions. And I want you to marry her. I want you to protect her. I want you to redeem her out of the life that she is in. Now, things go okay for a while. Gomer comes back, and this is all in chapter 1 and 2. I'm giving you the background for what we read just a moment ago. Things go great for a while. She has a child, and they give him a name, and then there's two more children that are born. But the prepositions change here. The first one was a son born unto Hosea. And we shouldn't read too much into this, but the next two don't say that. They just say that he was, they were born. And then Hosea names the third one, Loami, not mine. (laughs) How would you like to go around with that name? It's like a boy named Sue. Eventually, she leaves, leaves Hosea with these three sons and goes back to her former life. Now, what does Hosea do? How does he respond? He goes and finds the guy that she's shacked up with and gives him money secretly to help pay for her to help provide food and shelter for her. Though she's left him, left her children, hurts him deeply, he secretly provides for her. And then God comes again with another set of instructions. Go, show your love to your wife again. Go and ask her to come home. Tell her that she's forgiven. Tell her she can come home once again. Now, the problem is that the new lover has total control over her life, and Hosea has to go buy her back. She's for sale. She's a commodity, like a piece of meat in the marketplace, probably stripped naked, probably completely degraded internally and shamed. She's in the marketplace, probably looking down because no one else wants anything to do with her. She's just a commodity. She's something to be used. She's an object and probably naked so that the guys can get a good look at what they're buying. Now, people begin to bid on her, and they start the bidding quite low. The price that Hosea actually ends up buying her for is less than what you would buy a household slave for. That's how low she has sunk in the very community that she's chosen as her own. In the community that she's left her family for, she's sunk lower than a slave. She's worthless. But one of the voices that she hears bidding on her is familiar, one that maybe she's not heard for a long time. What's Hosea doing here? What's my former husband doing here to buy me? Is he here to exact his revenge? Is he here to punish me for my rule-breaking? Certainly he's not here to redeem me. Certainly, I'm not going home to be his wife again. He won't risk that. He won't risk the pain. He won't open himself up again to me leaving him once more. But instead of leaving, leading 
her away like a slave, like you would. You would lead them away in chains. He covers her. Instead of abusing her, he takes her home and says, I don't want you as a slave. I want you to be my wife. I want to belong to you exclusively. And this is going to surprise you, but God's not mad at you. God loves you. And I'm here to demonstrate his love to you. Now, that's a rather extended introduction to get to three basic and three fairly short points regarding how God's love works in our lives, how it's displayed to us, and how it draws us to repentance if we'll listen. We're going to look at the price of love, the potency or power of love, and then the plenitude of God's love. So first of all, there's a price. Now, what happens after this? So Hosea goes and buys his wife back. The drama's been building, and we wonder, what's going to happen next? Is she going to leave again? Is she going to be faithful? Is she going to fall into his arms and just be melted by his love? And we're waiting to see, and then we don't know. We don't hear anything else about what happens with Gomer. Does she stick with him? Does she get melted by his love, or does she leave one more time? It's like the end of uh, Inception with that little spinny thing that you don't know if it's going to fall down or stay up. You feel cheated at the end, and that's kind of how we feel here. What's going to happen with Gomer? But there's a reason that Hosea tells the story this way, and it's firstly that love comes at a price. If you love someone like God requires of Hosea, you are risking your future. You don't know how things are going to go. You don't know if the thing is going to keep spinning or fall down. You don't know if Gomer's going to abuse you one more time and run away or if you're go- she's going to fall into your arms, thankful and grateful, by your side forevermore. You don't know. Love comes at a price. You risk your future when you decide to love someone, especially in this way. You see, if Gomer runs back into his arms and everyone lives happily ever after, then we might expect in reading the prophecy that that's how things should go, that if we love someone, it guarantees a certain happy ending, sort of like in most romantic comedies. If you love like this, it'll win people over, and God is asking you to do this because things will go well when you choose to love someone. We also don't see her ultimately reject reject him and thus grow cynical about love, about truly loving other people. Hosea's relationship with Gomer becomes a living parable of God's love that that avoids both sentimentality at the cost of real life and real risk and the cost of your future, or a cynical posture where love is just an impossible ideal. God's love, true love, that love that he asked Hosea to model doesn't say change or I'll reject you, nor does it say live how you want, indulging your destructive desires. But God's love speaks truth to us. It asks us to change and yet gives us grace when we don't. Now, we're probably tempted to think that Gomer is the one in this story that really learns about God's grace, and we don't really know. Hopefully, we would think she's melted by God's love. She sees this display of how God's love works, this gracious, forgiving, forbearing love, and she's melted. She is just torn up inside. I can't believe that God would love me in this way. And and hopefully, that's true. 
And certainly you learn about grace and learn about love when you receive it. But it's when you're forced to give grace, when, it's, when you're forced to love in spite of offense, when you really begin to grasp it. God called Hosea to show love to Gomer in a way that she could not have fathomed, and it probably did melt her soul. But he also showed Hosea that, Hosea, if you're going to prophesy, prophesy about love, if you're going to be my rabbi, my pastor to these people, then you need to enter into love at a tremendous cost. You need to see that love will cost you everything. Hosea paid financially. He paid socially. This probably destroyed some of his reputation with some people. He would have been considered a fool to buy back this whore who's going to leave him again. Hosea, what are you thinking? He pays relationally with his family, with his children, with Gomer herself. He pays emotionally. He pays psychologically. Any time you offer love to someone, you make yourself vulnerable. You give them power over you in some way because they can abuse you. They can abuse that love. They can turn away from it. Now, there's a vast difference, however, in being friends with someone and being married to someone being friends with a prostitute that you're trying to help and trying to minister to and being married to a prostitute. If you're friends with someone, you're trying to show compassion, show mercy. When things get tough, when you get worn out, you can just take a break. You can step back. You can not answer your phone. You cannot answer your email for a few days until you kind of feel a little bit stronger, a little bit better. You get your energy back. If you're married, you can't do that. If you're married to the prostitute, the person with a problem, you can't leave. You can't let the phone roll to voicemail. You have to pick it up. It's your spouse. Their despair becomes your despair. Their joy becomes your joy. You are binding yourself to all that they are. And that's what God is asking them, asking Hosea to do. That's what God is asking us to do to our enemies, whether they're way across the country or they're sitting right next to us, that that is what true love does. It risks, it costs, it hurts from time to time. God says, I want you to marry her, to bind your happiness entirely to her, hers. Just like God does, he doesn't ask Hosea to love at a distance, to just show compassion, to send a little money. He says, no, you're to enter into her story. You're to be intimate with her and all that that means, and it's going to cost you. Of all the people in this story, it was Hosea who understood this the most because he was asked by God to show this kind of love. His theology of God's love, of God's character, wasn't theoretical. And if I was living around Samaria, I'd probably want him to be my pastor because He'd had his heart broken. He knew that love was costly. He knew that being called by God didn't guarantee a happy, perfect life, but it was a call into the trenches. He knew that. He knew the cost, the price of love. Now, secondly, there is a potency of love. Grace has the power. Love has the power to change you and I. 
Now, I alluded to this, described it a moment ago, but there's sort of two very inexpensive ways to love someone, ways that don't really cost you, ways where the price is not really high. There's two cheap ways. When someone that you say you love are, do, are doing something harmful, you support the person and compromise the truth. You stick by them, but you don't demand anything of them. Gomer's prostitution is just her self-expression. It's her way of validating herself. She's choosing this, and we need to support her as a whole person. Yes, it's sinful, but that's the way that she's chosen to live. Or maybe it's just an addiction and she can't help herself. So our job is not to judge her. Our job is not to bring any truth to the matter. We just need to accept her for who she is. But you see, friends, this is not real love. This is a sort of affection, but it's not real love. It's sentimentality. It's actually you're living at the cost of love. You're living at the, you're compromising your concern for that person. You see, true love doesn't just stay, but it speaks. True love doesn't just stay, but it speaks. It has things to say. It mixes grace, acceptance, love with truth. It interjects. It points out self-destructive behavior. It cares enough to make demands, just as Steve talked about last week, with an uh, intervention for an addiction. Certainly, that's painful. It's loving to help someone see their own self-destructive behavior. So one inexpensive way is to support the person, to affirm the person, accept the person, but compromise the truth. Never demand anything. Never point out any patterns in their lives that are harming themselves or the relationship. The other option is just to quit. I reject you. I'm done. I do not accept you any longer. Do whatever you want. These are the two inexpensive, cheap ways to love someone. But God says to Hosea in verse 1 of what we read, go and show love to Gomer. This word has a much wider range than is in our English word, uh, love. This love incorporates romantic, effective love, but it also has the sense of do acts of kindness unto them. Be loyal and compassionate. In fact, be allied with them. That's what this Hebrew word of love implies. Go, Hosea, demonstrate love to, Hosea, to Gomer. Don't just say you love her. Bind yourself to her no matter the cost. Hosea doesn't reject Gomer because of her sin or use his power over her to enslave her or force her to do what's right. That's truth without grace. You're living a sinful life and you'll stop or else. But he also doesn't indulge her. Do whatever you want. Whatever makes you happy, I'm here to support you. That's grace without truth. Instead, he buys her. He does the costly thing. He gives her grace. He gives her love, but he also gives her truth. He loves her in spite of sin, which is grace. And he asks her to change to live with him with certain boundaries and commitments. That's truth. Friends, we'll never change with just grace or just truth. We'll never become the type of people that God wants us to be if it's only about grace and forgiveness without truth, if it's at the expense of the other. We need both. We need his word and his commands and everything that he is asking of you and I 
as well as the forgiveness for all the times that we blow it and we don't do what he's expecting. When we see that grace never leaves, that he never says, I've had enough of you, when we see that, then we respond to the truth in a different way. We respond to truth out of gratitude, not as a way to earn his favor, not as a way to wrestle his love out of his hands. We need the tenderness of grace that says, no matter what, I love you, and my love is beyond your control. You can't change it by your behavior, and I'm going to keep giving it no matter what. But also, because I love you in that way, I want to see you change, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to see it through. And we'll see how that operated within Israel's life, the lengths to which God would go to see Israel change and return to them. If you're married this morning, you will understand this. But even if you've had a significant romantic relationship with someone, you know that a marriage has the power to change you. If the whole world says you're a nothing, a nobody, a loser, you're worthless and ugly, if everyone says that about you, it hurts and it stings. But if you come home and your spouse says you are smart, you're kind, you're wise and beautiful, then you go out into the world with a very different type of strength and a very different confidence. But the reverse is also true. If the whole world says you're awesome, but your spouse thinks you're a loser, then you go out into the world in weakness. It has that type of power in your life to change the direction of how you're living and what you think is valuable and how you see yourself. And God wants to give you that same type of covenant loyal love that changes the way that you enter into the world, that changes the way that you go about life and see yourself, that no matter what everyone else says about you, if everyone else thinks you're a loser, God, the king of the universe, says, I love you and that you are at the center of my affections. That changes you. And that type of compassionate grace calls you to say, okay, I want to live in such a way, not in order to guarantee that or to earn it, but because I have it in full. I want to live that way. Now, what's the sin in view here? What is God trying with this parable of Hosea and Gomer, this story, to show about Israel? Now, it says they love raisin cakes. (laughs) Now, I love St. Cupcakes, but I'm not sure that that's real, a real sin. It could be, overindulge, I guess. But raisin cakes, why raisin cakes? What's so important about that? Well, it takes a bit of exegetical spade work to figure out. But what commentators have said is that the raisin cakes are a synecdoche for indulgence or for idolatry. For the ancient reader, they were a delicacy. They were very pleasurable. They were something that anyone would want, but they had become attached in some way to a pagan ceremony or festival. So what raisin cakes for the original audience would suggest is a type of spiritual adultery. It would be a type of selfish indulgence at the cost of one's life with God. And it's very similar to the physical adultery of Gomer. It causes her to walk away from Hosea, to walk away from God. The actions of Israel are thus parallel to that of Gomer. And Gomer leaves the one who loved her and indulges instead in selfish pursuits. 
Now, becoming a prostitute in that day, as it is now, is not something that you pursue because you love sex. Often it's a very last resort or even foisted upon you by a powerful male. But it also says that she loved evil. She willingly chooses it over a fateful relationship with Hosea. There was some kind of pleasure-seeking attached to it, just like there was a pleasure-seeking with the Israelites and the raisin cakes. There was a reason that she was seeking out this life. There was some type of low-level glamour, perhaps, with it. And in the same way, Israel chases after pleasure instead of God. They've made something else ultimate in in their lives. Now, maybe you can relate this morning to one of the two people. You can relate to Gomer or you can relate to Israel in the way that they walk away from God. If you're relating to Israel, you're perhaps very religious, you're dutiful, you consider yourself a Christian this morning, you number yourself among God's children, but in some way central to who you are, in some way in your heart of hearts, you've begun or begun to walk away from God. Or maybe you have many years ago, and this is just sort of ritual for you. You've slept with other lovers. You used to know God. You remember what that was like, but it's gone. What's been your reason? What's been your distraction, your adulterous partner? Is it your reputation, your appearance? Is it having the latest gadget? Is it being competent at your job or as a parent? Is it sex itself? Is it food? What has gained the priority in your life that you say, I will give up other things important in order to have this. I will have this at all cost. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, hmm, not any of those, and I'm not sure what else would it be. That's why you're here. That's why, if you are a part of in town, that God has placed you in a community. Ask someone. Say to someone that you trust, what patterns do you see in my life that are harmful and destructive? What ways do you feel like I am walking away from what is central and true, that I'm walking away from what I say I believe? Now, maybe you're more like Gomer. You've thrown off any claims upon your life. You're your own Lord and Master, perusing, uh, pursuing what you think is best for you. Now, if Israel's sin is the religious way to avoid God, Gomer's is the irreligious way to do it. But you see, we have to see that at the root of those, both of those roots are more or less the same. They embody the same instinct because you can use religion and Christianity to avoid God in the same way that you can use irreligion. And yet God calls us saying that the very thing that we're looking for, whatever our schema might be to avoid him, is found only inside a loving and committed relationship with him alone. There's an Arcade Fire song that came out a few years ago. If you don't know who Arcade Fire is, it was this anthemic song for the, where, the wild, uh, where the wild things are in the previews. But he says, the writer says, Something filled up my heart with nothing. Someone told me not to cry. But now that I'm older, my heart's colder, and I can see that it's a lie. Children, wake up. Hold your mistake up before they turn the summer into dust. 
hold up your mistakes. Hold up your sinful patterns before they turn the summer into dust. Repent of your sin before it turns you into dust, into a shell. Your sin is not worth dying for. It's not worth giving your life for. Love, God's everlasting love is calling you to do this. Not rules and not indulgence. Rules might change someone for a moment, but you never know if they really love you or they're just placating you. You never know if they're obeying because they really want to serve or just to avoid punishment. And indulging someone might cause them to say very nice things about you, but the person won't respect you or be faithful. The love of God is potent. And it says, I will change you with love or nothing else. I won't force you. I won't compel you. I won't enslave you. But I will give you truth and grace. Your current loves are squeezing the life out of you. They, were t- they are turning you into dust. The things that you're wanting out of them will never be found. Your current loves will kill you, demanding more and more. Let me set you free. Let me tell you, no matter what, I will never reject you. I will always keep coming back. Grace and truth. God points to the truth and says, live in this way. This is the way I've created you to live. And then gives grace when you fail, when you blow it. And that's the, that's the secret to change. That's the potency. It's love, not rules. It's grace, not obligation. It's forgiveness, not if you do this, I will love you more. That's the potency. When you really begin to see the unlimited nature of God's love as depicted in Hosea's response to Gomer's sin, then you begin to see what God is really like, what his character is really like, what his love is really like. And then we, we see finally the plenitude of love, that it never runs out. One of the things that's so exciting about falling in love with someone romantically, about getting engaged or married, is the sense that someone has chosen you. Someone has said that beyond everyone else in the whole world, I choose you. I want to be with you. I know you in some holistic sense. I know enough about you to know you really, but I still want to be with you. And I reject all other lovers for you. And we like this. We've been singled out. It's flattering. Another human being has looked at us deeply and said, I like what I see. Now, the hard thing about God's love is it's not quite like this. It's not flattering. What God says is that I like you in spite of your foibles. In spite of the fact that I can see down to the center of your soul, I still love you, even though it's very dark and ugly and selfish there. I love you in spite of the fact that you often look on the outside very ugly. I've created you, and I love you, and there is, yes, a dignity to that. But the reason God loves you is not because you've made yourself up well, not because you've had great conversations with this person and they really have been drawn in, not because you've been matched up by some survey on the Internet. God says, I love you in spite of all the things that would cause me to reject you or should, all the things that are wrong about you. I love you in spite of that. 
you're a whore, but I love you. And he says, verse 4, For the Israelites will live many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessing in the last days. Is this on? I don't know if I'm... Can you hear me? Okay. Sounds different from up here to me, so I was worried. Israel's unfaithfulness has been like that of a loose woman. Hosea goes and buys Gomer back. He redeems her. And he sets up sort of a probationary period. He says, Gomer, you've lived this way in such a, for such a long time. I want you to come and live in my house for a period of time. And you are not to reenter into prostitution. And I'm not, even though we're married, going to consummate that relationship. There's a probationary period that for some reason Hosea sets up in Gomer's life. Now God goes to Israel and through his prophets says, you will not listen to me. You're like an adopted child that I have brought into my home. I have fed and clothed you and nourished you and loved you. And you won't listen to me anymore. You've rejected me. You've left home. And so to come back now, to woo them back, God sets up a sort of probationary time, just like in the life of Gomer. And what he does is he takes away their national pride. He takes away their king. And says, for many years there will be no king, no prince in Israel. You won't listen to me. You won't return. So I'm going to take something that is very dear to you. Do You see, friends, it's not punitive. It's not so that he can hurt them and inflict pain to the extent that they've hurt him. It's restorative. It's so that they will be drawn back. So they will finally get it, how far they've gone from him. He says, I'm going to take your king away. And beyond that, I'm going to have this other nation come in and occupy the land that I've given you. Friends, it's an intervention. It's just like something that you would do with someone who is dealing with addiction. You deprive them of that thing intentionally, not to hurt them or harm them or make them mad, but to help them, to rescue them, to save them, to get them back to normal life so that they can begin evaluating and saying, oh, I see, I have gone so far down that path, I am blinded to my own behavior. And it's the same thing with Israel. He takes away their king. He takes away their land. He deprives them of access to those things that they had been using as symbolic of their belonging to him, but really were only external factors. To redeem Gomer, he sends a husband. But here in this passage, we get a promise of another redeemer because he says that, There will be no king in Israel for a while, but one day David will be their king. They will seek the Lord, their God, and David their king. David had been dead for a number of years, hundreds of years at this point. So why David? This is a promise. As all the prophets have, it is a strict, stringent, powerful call to repentance with a promise at the end that entails a future time where all of Israel will come back to God, that they will seek him finally, and he will give them a new king, a new redeemer. To Gomer, he sends Hosea, a husband, 
And to us, in those coming days, he sends the perfect David, the final David, the final king. And Peter picks this up in Acts 2 and says, this is Jesus. He says that in the last days, the Lord will bring his blessing. And that's exactly what Peter says, is that it is, in, it is now that those last days have come about. It is Jesus that is that king, and it is Jesus that is bringing in that blessing. For Gomer, he redeems with a husband, with a prophet. For us, for you and I, he redeems with his very own son. Jesus comes in to rescue them from their own self-destruction. There's a story, as I, and I'll end with this, that Tony Campolos tells about being on a plane. And right before getting on the plane, and it's a short trip, there's a, a little girl. And she is dressed up in a white, fluffy dress. And she has uh, pigtails and leather shoes. And she just looks beautiful. But she gets to be very chatty and very annoying because she starts clapping and dancing around saying, I'm going to see daddy. I'm going to see daddy over and over. And Tony says at first that he found it very endearing and sweet and, oh, he'd like to see her meet uh, her dad on the other end of the plane. But after a while, it became very annoying. And just as you have been around children on the plane and you see them coming down the aisle and you're like, please don't sit by me, please don't sit by me. And the child, all the way down the aisle, I'm going to see daddy, clapping and clapping, comes and sits right across the aisle from him. And it's a short trip. It's, he said it's 30, 45 minutes. But the whole time, she's singing that, clapping, and also uh, eating massive amounts of cookies and drinking massive amounts of Coca-Cola. And so after 30 or 45 minutes of this, they begin to descend, but they hit some turbulence. And what happens? That little girl in her little white dress begins to just vomit all over herself and her mom. And so now what's annoying is not the noise, but the smell. And it just stinks to high heaven. And so when the plane lands and pulls to the gate, he can't wait to get off the plane. And as he's walking up the, the jetway, he sees at the end, this must have been the days before security, uh, wouldn't let you do this, but he sees a man standing there. And guess what the man has on? a white flannel suit, and he just thinks, this is poetic justice. This has got to be the dad. I've got to see and wait and see what happens. And so this girl, smelly, vomit-faced, all over, all over herself, comes running up the jetway, and the dad kneels down in his white flannel suit and welcomes her, his daughter because what's important is that he's with his daughter, not his, not his suit. It's not that he's going to smell. It's not that he's going to look like he's been vomiting. He is embracing his daughter because she's the love of his life. And friends, that is just a perfect image for us, is that we like to put on a, a clean shirt. We want to act like we have nothing wrong, and yet we have vomit all over, over, over us. We are the whore that has gone over and over to other lovers, and yet Jesus bends down and says, come and let your vomit come to me. Let your sin, let everything that is wrong and ugly and despoiled about you, let it be mine. And he takes it on, and he makes you, he makes us clean and perfect forevermore. That's the perfect David, David. And that's the type of love that will cause you to want to change that will cause you to want to repent. 
It's exactly the opposite of what we think. We think if God doesn't forgive us, if he holds out a threat, then we'll change. But it's not true. And that's not how the Bible holds it out. The Bible says you will change when you begin to see that even if you don't, that Jesus will still stoop down and embrace you and he'll get dirty and vomit all over him because he loves you and he'll never stop loving you. Let's pray. Father, there's so much here for us to think about. There's so much here for us to celebrate. There's also so much here that is cautionary about the way we live and how self-deceived we can be. Father, I pray that we would begin to be able to see the commands that you give us as you point us to a different kind of life, as others come into our lives and as an act of love begin to point out things, I pray that you would help us to thank them and ultimately to thank you. Father, I pray that we would come out of our dark prison of self-indulgence and self-importance and look to you. Would you give us and grant us a new center this morning? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.